0: Pretty amazing song for those of you Johnny Cash fans to look at all those years of best selling albums, popularity, fame, money, and to say, you can take everything I've ever had, everything I've ever made, it's just an empire of dirt. We're gonna to look today at his end quote. What's the last thing he said before he died? Johnny Cash, the legendary musician known as the Man in Black, lived a long dramatic life. His Grammy winning video The Hurt, which we just saw, depicts the temptations he battled during a life lived in the spotlight. If you followed his career or saw the movie Walk the Line, you know that Cash battled alcoholism, drug addiction, and infidelity during his rise to fame. But he came out on the other end with a deep, abiding faith in God and a commitment to helping others. Cash recorded dozens of hit songs during his 50-year career, and he's enshrined in both the country music and the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. When he died in 2003, his prophetic last words were, A train's a-comin'. That end quote, which optimistically hinted at the afterlife to come, were lyrics from his memorable song, Folsom Prison Blues. Johnny Cass first recorded Folsom Prison Blues in 1956. It soared to number four on the charts, but the live version of the tune from his 1968 album, Live from Folsom Prison, showcases Cash at the peak of his powers. He described the audience of inmates as, quote, the most enthusiastic audience I have ever played to. Their reaction is in response to the song's gut-wrenching lyrics, which convey the longings of an incarcerated man. In interviews, Cash admitted that his connection to the song was authentic. He knew that given his temper and given his addictions, it wouldn't have taken much for him to be the man in the song. Chained up, hearing the distant whistle of freedom, and deeply regretting his choices. So that album was recorded as the first live album, first album that Johnny Cash did after a deeply spiritual encounter that he had just a few months or even a few years earlier. Despite his fame, despite his success, despite his popularity, despite all the accolades and awards he had, Johnny Cash made his way in Tennessee into a system of caves he walked deep into the labyrinth of caves, turning and twisting, not even keeping track of where he was going or what turns he made because he did not plan on coming out. Finally deep into the cavern of the cave, he sat down in the darkness of the cave and it was so dark he couldn't even see his own hand. And he was going to commit suicide. And as he waited for the loneliness to come over him, to give him the courage and the energy to take his own life, as he sat there in the darkness, he felt a breeze. And he had what he calls in his autobiography a deeply spiritual moment when he felt the presence of God in a way that none of his fame and none of his money had ever gotten this feeling to him. And he said, I realized in the moment of darkness and despair that God had not left me, despite my determination to leave him. But now, he doesn't know how to get out of the case. You know, when you think of Johnny Cash, it came to that moment in his life when he realized his life was out of place. He needed something more than fame and money and popularity. He needed a greater power source. He needed something deeper and more meaningful in his life than all the things he had. And when we look at Jesus' end quote today, Today you'll be with me in paradise. The idea of paradise is something that doesn't resonate with a lot of us because we say, yeah, people like prisoners and addicts, they need God. They need to go to heaven. They need a little little effort in their life, I guess. But... Honestly, I don't struggle with that, that kind of stuff. So my life's maybe a little out of place, but not enough that I need God's help. In fact, only people who are sort of weak-minded need that kind of a crutch in their life. And so when Jesus speaks about paradise, it doesn't really resonate with us because we don't feel like we're that out of place. In fact, we say, you know, I don't know anyone as moral, as kind, as righteous, or as thankful as me. Mm. I'm not saying I'm perfect. I'm just saying I'm doing pretty good. Thank you very much. So I think if God sort of has a scale of good and bad, I think I'll get in. Thank you very much. If he grades on a curve. And then when you hear a Christian or a religious person come and describe, you know, heaven or paradise, it sounds like an absolute drag. Not only do you not agree on the problem, you don't even agree on the solution. Oh, my goodness. I mean, how long can you play a harp for crying out loud? I don't even like harp music. I don't even play harp music. And sure, the, the cloud will be comfortable to sit in, but, but how long do you sit on a cloud for eternity and that's going to solve everything? What a drag. And so there's a lot of sort of built-in obstacles to understanding this end quote by Jesus. And we're going to try and untangle some of those. Because Jesus says that paradise is a place that everything is in its place. And you're not going to want everything to be in its place unless you start with the premise that there might be some things that are out of place in your life. Let me ask you this, if we were to take your secrets, every secret thought, every secret habit, if you were to dwell on that for a moment, like, I don't like to dwell on that, but if we were just to take a moment and dwell on your secrets, are there some things that are out of place? How about your longings? Well, like Johnny Cash, all of your longings, all of your dreams, all of your hopes have been fulfilled. And don't you still have a sense that there must be something more? Paradise is the answer. As C.S. Lewis says, if you find yourself in this world unsatisfied by the wonders of this world, then perhaps you were made for another world. Perhaps those eternal longing for significance in you speak to a higher place, a place the Bible calls paradise. So we're going to look at what it means for God to be in his proper place today what it means to find ourselves in our proper place, but ultimately the hope of knowing that the world can be put in its proper place. What's pretty amazing, and what I'm excited about sharing this with you, is I think it addresses a lot of potential obstacles people have to the Christian message, but it really addresses the basic problem and solution to life that the Bible describes. So we'll start here. What does it mean that God's in His proper place? Well, here in the passage, what we discover is that we got two criminals hanging to the left and right of Jesus. Being crucified through the Roman equivalent of the electric chair is what a cross is. And so it says here in the passage, one of the criminals who were hanged blasphemed him. We're going to get into blasphemy in just a second. Saying, if you're the Christ, save yourself and us. The other answered and said, rebuked him and said, don't say that. Do you not even fear God, seeing you are under the same condemnation? So the word blasphemy is really interesting. And it speaks to the basic problem of the human heart. And he ask most people, like, what, what's the basic problem in the human heart? What, what's God's, God's top ten list? Well, we shouldn't murder people, we shouldn't kill people. Thank goodness I haven't murdered or killed anybody, so I guess I'm fine. But actually, the main problem in the human heart that the Bible describes is that we do not put God in his proper place. We put myself in the place of God, or we put God in a place he doesn't deserve. That is the fundamental cause of every other issue in your life is that you and I have put ourselves in the place of God and we de-ranked or dethroned God to some other minor priority in our life. And so the word blasphemy is a way in which you try and instead of serve God, you use God. So the reason this criminal is blaspheming God is he's basically saying, if you really are God and you claim to be. I'll pause there for a second. You know, many people are concerned. They say, I don't think Jesus really claimed to be God. Christians sort of invented that later. Well, keep in mind that Jesus is crucified by the historic records for blasphemy. And actually, blasphemy was the claim to be God. So he's actually under um, verdict and execution for the very crime of blasphemy. But here we don't see Jesus' blasphemy. We see a criminal's blasphemy. He is saying, if you are really God like you say you are, I know what God would do in this situation. You need to save yourself and us. This is what's so interesting about the Bible. It says that that's the problem that you and I have with God. We try and use God to get what we want. God, if you're really God, you wouldn't let me go through this suffering. God, if you're really God, you would get me out of the situation. God, if you are really God... And that is the way the human heart puts itself in the place of God. Now, there's lots of ways we do this. We are the criminal. Or at least, you might say, well, I don't think I am the criminal. Let me tell you what, how I'm the criminal. There are so many ways that we put ourselves in the place of God. Some of you would say, well, I don't do that. But I, I, people tell me I'm a perfectionist. All right, let's pause and think about that for a second. You're a perfectionist, which means... Though you have a track record of never quite making it, which is why you frustrate yourself and your family, right? That's what perfections do. You're you're as hard on yourself as you're on other people, right? That's what perfectionists are. What is a perfectionist? I'm trying to be as perfect as the only one who's perfect. That's putting yourself in the place of God. Now, lest the rest of us get some self-righteousness, let's talk about worry. We have a few worriers here. I know I can worry about things, especially the things I care most about. What do you do when you worry? You know how it should go. You know how it should happen. And so you are going to control time and space through your thoughts of thinking about it over and over again. What are you doing? You're trying to control things only God can control. You're putting yourself in the place of God. Some of us are controllers. Controllers. Trying to control the two things you can't control, people and circumstances. The two things only God can control. You're putting yourself in the place of God. Now, sometimes we come to God or the Bible and we say, listen, I don't like that the Bible says complaining is a problem. I don't think complaining's a big deal. Or, or it says that we should respect and encourage other people. I'm not being discouraging. I'm just telling it how it is. And so we then say, I define what's right and wrong. God, you don't define what's right and wrong. And what have we done? We've made ourselves or put ourselves in the place of God. When you say, I know that God says apparently through the Bible that I'm got a problem and that I, I, you know, if there's a scale, I'm not going to make it to heaven. That's why Jesus had to die for me. And you say, no, no, no. I think I'm fine. There's bad people like Johnny Cash, who is an addict, who need that kind of thing, but I'm fine. And when you say, I'm fine, and a lot of us do that, what you're saying is, I'm good enough for God without his help. And when God tells me I'm not good enough for him, well, shame on God for, for saying that. Now, you, you can believe whatever you want at Horizon, but what I'm trying to show you is, if what the Bible says is true... It's diagnosing that that is a symptom of the problem that we placed ourselves in the place of God by defining what's right and wrong, trying to control the universe, trying to be a perfectionist, and even impatience. So if you ask my family, hey, what's Chad's biggest problem? I say, impatience. So when I'm impatient, what am I really doing? I'm saying to myself, I know what speed life should go at. I know the speed at which this should have been accomplished. And God, I'm now telling you... Or the people around me. Or just in my general attitude toward the circumstance. You can see I'm impatient because I know how it should have happened. And that's why I place put myself in the place of God. I know better than God how life should be unfolding. So those are just a few ways that we do what this criminal did. We put ourselves, we blaspheme God or we use God. God, if you're really God, you'll do what I want and get me out of the situation I'm in. Now, there's a lot of ways in which... If you don't put yourself in the place of God, you at least don't put God in his proper place. Now, if there's a God, you're saying, I'm not, I think there's maybe a God, I'm not sure if he gets involved, but if you believe there's a God, or even the concept of God, and if the God made you, and you're his creation, or you're his son or daughter, what kind of a son or daughter ignores their dad or their creator most of their life? You know, I would say, well, that, that's probably not a good son. That's probably not a good creation. Well, when we put God as a low priority, a no priority, we treat him like an afterthought. It's a way in which we not only put ourselves in the place of God, but we don't give God his proper place. It's called blasphemy. It's almost like, and I know you don't do this, so I'll just thank you for creating a safe place that I can share. Um, Sometimes what I do is I don't pray until it's the last thing I'm going to do or to get advice for what something I might want to do. And so I think of God the same way I think of my spare tire. Have you thought of your spare tire lately? Not me. The only time I think of my spare tire tires, my son and I were driving to an airport uh, back in December and we had a flat on our way, already running late to the airport. Fum, 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 fum. And at that moment, I loved his spare tire. I thought of his spare tire. I needed his spare tire. I popped open the spare tire and I realized it's hard to get access to the spare tire if you don't have the wrench kit with you. And we pull God out, help me with this, solve this, fix this, thank you, God. We throw him back in, we slam it down, and we forget about him for another 5, 10, 15 years. And do you see how, even if you don't believe it, do you see how that would be inappropriate for your boss, your father, let alone God? And yet you're like, oh, wow, that describes the last 20 years of my life. And so the Bible says the, the biggest problem in the human heart is exactly that. We put ourselves in the place of God, and we don't put God in his proper place. It's actually one of the reasons that suicide is actually considered immoral. It's not because it's going to hurt your family, though it does. It's because when you take your own life, you're taking something that belongs to God, the author of life. But suicide is forgivable in the same way impatience is forgivable, in the same way worry is forgivable, in the same way all these other things are forgivable. But they all are symptoms of the greatest problem. So Johnny Cash is sitting in the darkness, realizing God has not left him, despite his determination to leave God. And he's deeply broken over the fact his whole life, he's put himself in the place of God. I'm going to run my body however I want whatever drugs I want, I'm going to run my life however I want, I'm going to run my marriage however I want. And now he's at the ultimate putting himself in the place of God. He's going to take his life which belongs to God. He falls to his knees with this spiritual encounter of realizing that he needs God's forgiveness for putting himself in the place of God. And now in the darkness he realizes he can't get out. He came here to die. He has no way out. And as he's there, literally on his hands and knees, he feels a breeze. And he realizes that if that breeze is there, God is only with him, that God may be giving him a way out. He describes in his autobiography how he slowly crawls his way through the cave, feeling for the breeze. So he can make each turn and each twist. And eventually, through the following of the breeze and wind of the Spirit, he crawls his way to freedom, coming out of that cave that day to find his wife and friend worried sick about him as he described what he would call his moment of coming not just to God but to Jesus, needing forgiveness for what he's done, for putting himself and his career in the place of God. That's the first aspect of what does it mean for God to be in his proper place. And when you realize that that's the fundamental problem that you may be guilty of, I know I am, you come to the second step. What does it mean to put yourself in the proper place, then, if, you, if, you, if you're guilty of this? And here we see what the second criminal says, and there's three steps to this that clearly communicate the main message of the Bible. The proper place. You're not going to find your place until you realize you're out of place. Wow, I do that. I may not be on that list of things you talked about, but I certainly do the list you just gave me. So here's what happens in the passage. Step one of sort of realigning yourself with God is you need to agree that God is just in judging me fairly. Look what the, the other criminal says. Listen, why are you condemning him? We're under the same condemnation, and we indeed justly, we deserve this. Now this is the hardest part for people to embrace, actually the second hardest part, to coming to the main message of the Bible. You have to come to the conclusion that God is just in saying that my devaluing of him, my exalting of myself, my not being thankful, my being unkind is really worthy of death. And let me tell you, this is so hard for the human heart to believe, because you're so always, and I'm always grading on a curve. In fact, I saw an article this week classic psychological explanation of why the human heart cannot embrace that it deserves judgment. They did a survey in London, and they found that 98% of the people in England think they're in the top 50% nicest people in England. 98% of British people think they're part of the nicest 50%. We are always grading ourselves on a curve. Now, again, I know you don't do this. Let me share how I do this. My wife comes to me and says, Chad, you need to work on something. And maybe she's got a list. She says, Chad, I have a list of things you need to work on. And I say, Oh, well, you know, I want, to, I want to be a good husband, so I want to look at your list. I don't see anything kind of fuzzy in fact what no I don't do that Well, if I do that it's so minor it's so small it's so insignificant I can't even bring it I can't even bring you brought it up in fact I have a list and my list is very pertinent here that you would bring up something so small and so fuzzy to me can you look at your list because I want to tell you about your list honey it's huge it's shocking it's shocking how insensitive you are it's shocking how disrespectful you are. It's shocking that you would even bring this up in this way at this time. Shuck, shuck, shucking. <laughs> and so she gives some examples of how I've done whatever it is I've done and how she's just in having a concern. Well, let me look at it again. No, nope. no, nope. don't see it. No. Nope. And whatever whatever it is you're seeing, I guess, and I think it's a speck maybe. It's nothing compared, whoa, to your list. And this is why what's broken in our relationship with God is what's broken in our relationship with our kids, with our bosses, with our employees, with with our spouses, is this tendency of the human heart to do confirmation bias, where we filter out stuff that shows we're wrong and we enhance stuff that shows we're right, keeps us from agreeing with God. That the idea of demarginalizing, deprioritizing our Creator shouldn't be that big of a deal brings us to the second thing that the thief says is that we need to agree not only that if we got a fair trial we wouldn't do well but the result of that fair trial would result in us getting our due reward we are receiving the due reward of our deeds if you agree with my premise that putting yourself in the place of god is bad and if god said the result of that is death and you're like well i don't really heaven and hell kind of death well even if you want to believe that Wouldn't you agree that when you worry, you put death into your life? Even your doctor says, hey, you've got to stop that. You're you're, you're burning a hole in your stomach. There's death coming from you worrying so much. You're really stressed out. You've turned your career into your ultimate identity, and you're living for your career rather than living for God. And what they say, you've got to de-stress. There's death coming to your health because of what you've chosen to do. And so part of coming to God is saying, I agree that... If you judge me fairly and I got my due reward, I'd be in trouble. But thirdly, the you need to agree to a third thing. And that's really interesting here because the criminal looks at Jesus and says, And that guy right there, he didn't do anything wrong. This man has done nothing wrong. He doesn't deserve it. Now, how does he come to that conclusion? He's never seen, he hasn't had that much encounter with Jesus. He's never seen a man hanging on a cross or a criminal who's looking at the people killing him, saying, Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. There's something about Jesus' triumphal death that is so stunning that even the criminals and the soldiers crucifying him are drawn toward it. And then Jesus says this. He says well, it's like he says to Jesus, Lord, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And that's really how simple it is to become a Christian. I agree that I'm in trouble. I agree I put myself in the place of God. I agree I'm going to get my due reward. It's not good. And I agree that when you died, you died for me. And they say, Jesus, will you remember me? And Jesus says this here's his end quote Assuredly, now let's start with that word assurance. It's a guarantee. You can be confident of what I'm saying. He doesn't say wishfully. He doesn't say hopefully. He doesn't say maybe. He says, assuredly, I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. This is what makes Christianity so fundamentally different from every other religion or philosophy. And it's also the difference between the Bible's message versus the religious version of the message. If you've come across Christianity or you grew up in a, 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 a branch or a flavor of Christianity and you still sit with a blanket of guilt around yourself all the time, oh, my God. Get out of the blanket of guilt. The blanket of guilt is just everywhere. And you hope that maybe when you get to heaven, maybe, maybe, hopefully my good outweighs the bad, and hopefully then you haven't yet got the main message of the Bible. Assuredly, you can know for sure you're at peace with God. You can know for sure you've been forgiven. You can know for sure you have access to paradise. How can I know for sure? Because it's not based on what you do or don't do. It's based on what he did. And so what he's saying here is, is surely, confidently, I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. And that wasn't just a message to the criminal. It was a message to all of us. Now, it's helpful to understand that even this is a claim of Jesus being saying, I'm God. Because if you were a Jewish rabbi and somebody wanted to be forgiven, there's only one place you can be forgiven. you got to go to temple. Because the, the Jews believed, through the tabernacle and the temple, that the tabernacle is a place that heaven and earth came together. And so you could be forgiven, and you could find acceptance, and you could be decontaminated, so to speak, but only in one location, at temple. Jesus is saying, no, 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 no. no. You don't have to go to the high priest. You don't have to go to the temple. I am the temple. I am the high priest. And I'm declaring right here this Roman cross on this pile of garbage on this heap called Calvary could be a sacred place that you can be forgiven. No Jewish rabbi would ever say this. Jesus is claiming that he determines what is sacred space. Instead of going to the right place to be forgiven, he turns us into the right place to be forgiven. And this transforms the world. It's not a claim that Jesus says he's God because he determines what sacred space is, but it's a determination he can meet you in your garbage heap, whether your marriage is going great or having trouble, whether your relationship with your kids are doing great or you really got some dysfunction. God says, I will come to your moment, and he will say, remember me. I will bring that into a place of forgiveness and a place of reconciliation if you'll trust me for it. I want to work in your life in that way. My daughter and I went down to Nashville last August. We shot a TV show. It comes out sometime this year. If I ever get information about it, I'll let you know. Um, So we're we're down there. We're shooting the the 16 episodes. And while we're there, we got to stay at Conway Twitty's place. It was bought out by this production studio. And so we're staying in the mother-in-law suite of Conway Twitty's mansion. He's got these little cottages for his kids. And then we're going across the street to shoot the the TV show. And then we're coming back and just having a great time uh, putting the whole thing together. And they told us a story The Conway Twitty, as much as he had popularity and fame and all this stuff, apparently his kids were aware that he was out of place as a dad. Because the minute he died, the kids came out of their cottage, walked across the pool, grabbed everything in the mansion, walked it out and set it on the street. Anyone who wants dad's stuff can have it because we don't want to have anything to do with our father. See, sometimes we think because somebody praises us, because somebody thanks us, that nothing's out of place in our life. I was just struck by that. One of the guys from our publishing company uh, for Fast Track Bible came by and said, Hey, can I give you a tour of Nashville? I said, Sure. He goes, Let me drive you down to Johnny Cash's house. I said, It's near here? He said, It's like a mile from here. So we drove away from uh, Twittyville. It was going to be Twittyville. And we turned and we see... Uh, This beautiful stone wall. Like, here it is. We're coming up to Johnny Cash's house. And as we come up over the hill, we see Johnny Cash's house. And I'm like, where is it? He said, well, it burned down in 2007. I said, so you're telling me he went down, down, down into a ring of fire? He said, well, I haven't heard that one before. And Johnny Cash realized that in the same way you can have nice houses, you can have nice cars, you can have lots of nice things. You can be, you know... Rock and roll Hall of Fame, you can have it all. But ultimately, it doesn't fully and finally satisfy because everything you build in this world ultimately will not survive, will eventually decay and wear out. We want something eternal to go with our eternal longings. That's what he found here, which speaks to this last point. So, one, we realize God has a proper place and we really haven't given it to him. Two, finding our proper place is agreeing we've done that and that we need God's forgiveness. The third part is this message of hope from the Bible that describes what's wrong with the world, that the world is not in its proper place. And here Jesus says, "Today you will be with me in paradise." Now, whether you believe this or not, the Bible has a very unique story. I happen to think it's true, but in this unique story, it explains why evil's a problem. I was like, "How can you be a Christian because of evil in the world?" Christianity. This explains why evil's even a problem. And it explains the solution for evil. The word paradise is used three times in the Bible. One time here by Jesus. One time by Paul. And one time in the book of Revelation. And it's describing the Bible's story about life. The Bible says there once was a world that was perfect. There was a tree of life. The God and and mankind dwelt together. With no suffering. With no pain. With no injustice. No betrayal. So let's start there for a second. When you say people shouldn't act that way. When you go to a funeral and you feel it even if you don't say it. It's not supposed to be this way. Children aren't supposed to die. Or no father should outlive their son. Or why do the good people die? You say that, right? I say that. When you see a drunk driver kill somebody. What you say to yourself out loud, if not privately, is it shouldn't be this way. What are you comparing what you're observing to to get that conclusion? It's not like you look at history and go, oh, it used to be so good. There used to not be any death and suffering. There used to not be any betrayal. No, you look at human history, any cursory view of history, and you're like, it's bad, 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 bad all the time. And yet, while bad it is, we're saying, but it shouldn't be that way. As if we're comparing what we observe to some echo deep within our hearts. A vision, a dream maybe, a hope that there once was a world that was righteous. Where evil people did get their due. There once was a world there wasn't suffering and death. He said, Well I don't believe that. Yeah, but you see how your heart wants to? Your heart, even when you say evil's a problem, you're saying it's a problem compared to a world that's not supposed to have this. If the world's always been filled with death and suffering, and you have death and suffering, that's not a problem, that's consistent. The Bible's teaching that there once was a world without death and suffering actually speaks to why evil's a problem and why we struggle with. So if evil's a problem, you're already thinking like a Christian. Two, Paul uses the idea of paradise. that He says, when you live in this world, you're living between two paradises. There once was a paradise, and God's going to restore it eventually. But in the meantime, let me tell you, God took me to paradise one time, Paul says. And it's so much better than here, because down here I get shipwrecked, I get stoned, I get beaten. It's bad down here. A friend of mine says it this way. He says, when you're living in the meantime, and that's where we are, the meantime between two paradises, living in the meantime can be a very mean time. And the Bible describes this earth and this time period in earth as a mean time. But it explains why it's not supposed to be this way. Something is fundamentally broken, not just in the world, but in me. Because I even do this to myself. I shouldn't act this way. I know the right thing to do, but I'm not doing it. What I want to do, I do not do. And what I hate, I find myself doing. I know there's an echo of the real me that not supposed to operate this way but the current version of me is broken and i long for the world to be fixed i long for myself to be fixed i long for my marriage to be fixed i long for society to be fixed and if the story of the bible is true it says there is a solution paradise is coming in revelations and god will one day restore there will be no more tears and i will give you to eat from the tree of life in paradise And if you ever wanted to know why evil is a problem, paradise speaks to it. If you ever want to know, could there ever be a world that the evil people are held accountable? Can there ever be a world where there's no more tears? The Bible's vision of paradise speaks to that. And even more than that, it addresses the problem of why isn't God dealing with this mess in the middle right now? After World War II, there was a play written by a Lutheran minister, but the play just went gangster, uh, gangbusters all over um, Germany because everyone was trying to figure out who's to blame for Hitler. So the play really puts to um, a drama form, the play was called The Sign of Jonah, this idea. So what happens in the play is there's a whole group of humankind, and they are saying, well, who's to blame for Hitler? Well, I think the reason to blame is the politicians. Yeah, the politicians, they're the ones that put him in power. And somebody else goes, well, who put the politicians in power? Oh, that's true. It's, it's the people. The people who put it in power. So says, well, it wasn't just the people. You know, initially, Hitler rose to power through his work by getting the religious people on his side, which is true if you read history. He got the religious people to sort of believe in his, his get rid of this person, get rid of that person kind of thing. And so it's the church's fault for letting this happen. The church says, well, actually, no, he took the writings of Martin Luther. Martin Luther sort of went off the deep end in the end of his life and started writing very racist things against Jewish people. And Hitler used the writings of Martin Luther to basically endorse his sort of you know, crazy, horrible, cruel things he was doing. It's Martin Luther's fault for doing it. Well, as they sort of get done in the drama, who's to blame for Adolf Hitler? They come to the place, they say, we know who's to blame. God is to blame for making Adolf Hitler. God is to blame for not stopping this. God is to blame for not fixing this. So they hold in this trial, they have a trial for God and God is declared guilty for all of the evil and justice in the world. And having been declared guilty, he's come to get a verdict and all of humankind speaks up. The marginalized single mom says he needs to bear my pain. The criminal who who is unjustly did not get a fair trial says he needs to bear my pain. The person who was betrayed by a friend, stabbed in the back, says, he's got to serve my verdict. And after all the verdict of all humankind is thrown upon God in the play, three angels come up to announce the sentence. And the first one says, your sentence and verdict is this. Number one, you shall be born marginalized, poor, with a questionable birth second angel steps up and you shall live a life filled with pain. Your friends will abandon you. Best friends will betray you, stab you in the back and deny you. You will feel the pain of losing people you love to death, even the unjust death of losing a cousin. And then the third angel steps forth and when you die. It shall be in the most cruel, unusual way possible. You shall have a mockery of a trial, and by that, God, you will serve the penalty of all the evil you have allowed in this world. And with that third proclamation, the play says there was a long, long silence. As the audience realized, God had already served the sentence. And that's what makes Christianity so unique. Because if it's true, and I believe it is, God didn't write a thesis about suffering. He came to earth and lived among us. He bore the pain and the suffering and the evil around us. That's what God did. And that is why paradise is the promise that God can put everything back in its place. And the takeaway for you and I is this. God says, if you want what I have, you need to confirm, number one, confirm your place in heaven, just like that, that criminal did. God, I believe I've done wrong things, I believe I haven't put you in your proper place, and I believe I need forgiveness. That's what it means to find your proper place. The second thing is you find specific ways in which, oh my goodness, it's not just I'm a worrier, I ought to work on that. Worrying is me putting myself in the place of God. I'm not just a perfectionist, and that's because my grandpa was a perfectionist, it's because I put myself in the place of God. God, forgive me for making my career, my attitude, my perspective more important than yours. And when you do that, God says you can have confidence that you're forgiven of everything, free from guilt, free from shame. Contrast Jesus' phrase, today you will be in paradise, from the end quote of Buddha when he died. Do you know what Buddha's end quote was? Keep striving. That's religion. Whatever flavor you want. Keep striving. <gasps> Did you pray enough? I don't know. Could have prayed more? I could have prayed more. I could have prayed more. Did you help enough people? I helped a lot of people. Could you help more people? Yeah, well, keep striving. Keep striving. Maybe, 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 maybe you're getting to heaven. Jesus says it is finished. Assuredly, confidently you can know you're going to heaven. Not based on what you've done, but based on what he's done. Because Jesus changes the dilemma in the human heart with the law. See, we bounce back and forth on the law. We know the law is good. There's some things we should do. So we bounce back and forth between legalism. I've got to do it all. I've got to do it all. Man, I'm worn out. I can't do it all. So then we go the other side. You know what? The law doesn't matter. We're human. You know what? God's going to let it all go. Not a big deal. Whew. I guess if I betrayed somebody, I wish I hadn't. But somebody betrayed me. Oh, he shouldn't do that. So the human heart is caught between the law being legalistic toward it or licitious toward it. And Jesus proves the way to fulfill the law so it's good without the burden of having to keep it. So now you want to obey the law because you want to, not you have to. Mark Twain had this reoccurring dream. He kept waking up, and in his dream he would wake up and there was a giant Bible sitting on his chest. getting because of it Now you don't have to be a psychology major to figure out some of the meaning of that he felt the weight that there's some things you're supposed to do but it was crushing him that weight jesus quote about paradise he says i took the law and it is good we shouldn't murder we should be kind we should be tender we should put god in his proper place and he put the full weight of the law on himself and he was crushed under the weight of it on the cross and he said, now you can get to heaven based on what I've done, not based on what you do. I've fulfilled the law. And now without the burden of you needing to fulfill it, you can pursue obeying it without any hopes you're going to be a perfectionist. You're not going to do it perfectly. You can now pursue it out of love. And that's the freedom God gives to us, that you can know the problem of life and the solution to life. And so when you get where you're going, when you get to heaven and on your way to heaven, you practice forgiveness and reconciliation in your life. I love the words of this next song by Brad Paisley. It says, "When I get where I'm going." And he speaks with such confidence, the same confidence Johnny Cash had at the end of his life when he said, "I hear a train a-comin'." And he was looking forward to that train. Who wouldn't want to be free from fear? Who wouldn't want to see Grandpa again? Who wouldn't want to be free from the aches and pains of a body that just keeps not working like it used to when you were 20? The hope of heaven, you're not sitting on clouds playing harps. The Bible describes heaven as a real place with real people with real bodies. I came to a funeral with my friend of mine uh, years ago, a group of mostly non, uh, non-practicing, not-believing people. I said, listen, you guys all love golf, right? In Christianity, there's green pastures. You get to play golf for eternity. If nothing else, believe this message, you can keep playing golf. And they all laughed. If you want the hope of paradise, it's a simple saying, Jesus, remember me. Don't give you a chance to do that in your own heart. Just pray to God and say, God, I agree. I put myself in your place. And I need help. Remember me. When you come into your kingdom and invite your kingdom, your will, to be done on earth, in my life, as it is in heaven. And Father, I ask you honor those prayers. You come bring healing, bring comfort, bring strength, bring wisdom, and bring forgiveness. That we can go out before you into our everyday life with the confidence that we can have peace with you. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Thanks for being here today. We'll continue our series next week with It Is Finished. He came prepared to give us some offering boxes on the way out. Thanks again.